The Gist is brought to you by Prudential's 4040 Vision, a multimedia microsite exploring what life and the future looks like for today's 40-somethings. Hear what inspires real people, the hopes they have for tomorrow, and much more. See yourself in their stories at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. The following podcast contains explicit language. Friday, October 16th, 2015, from Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today on Morning Edition, Republican Representative Mike Pompei, a member of the House Committee on Benghazi, issued this justification for the work of his committee. This committee, since its formation, has been criticized. It's been attacked, frankly, from the right for not doing enough. It's been attacked from the left for doing too much. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is an explanation for every mainstream Republican policy or idea ever. Democrats don't like it, and the guys at Breitbart also take issue, so it must be working. Oof. It is a trap to think that just because disparate groups dislike you, then you necessarily exist in the sweet spot of moderation and sagacity. Relatedly, two days ago, Pompeo's fellow House Republican, Richard Hanna, weighed in against the party line. I think that there was a big part of this investigation that uh, was designed... uh, to go after people, and you, uh, an individual, Hillary Clinton. And, um, you know, I think there's also a lot of it that's important that, that we needed to get to the bottom of this. But this has been the longest investigation, uh, longer than Watergate. Now, for some context, Hannah is perhaps the most moderate Republican in Congress, and he serves a district that is just barely Republican. So it is a Republican breaking ranks, but a little asterisky there. See, I say this. I say if we're going to use government resources to get answers, the question that needs to be raised is this. National League Championship Series. Hillary Clinton lives in New York, where the Mets are from, but raised in Chicago. Cubs fan, Mets fan, opportunistic, split loyalties. If you want to have eight congressional committees and a State Department Accountability Review Board look into something, how about that, huh? How about a Michael Bay movie starring the guy from the e-insurance commercials on that one? I'm signing on. On today's show, it's an Antan Twig. We spiel about it. But first, way back to 1971, songs of love and roller skates and love of roller skates were in the air. I've been looking around a while. You got something for me. The year 1971 was important for a number of reasons. One, Chris Malamphy was born. He writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate, and he talks about the number one songs of every year. Two, Your Humble Host was born. I was born on the anti-penultimate day of 1971. I only got to hear one of the number one hits of 1971. Unfortunately, it was Melanie's Brand New Key. I remember hearing that upon being birthed in my driveway. See the episode from about 15 shows ago. But Chris is here with us right here, right now, to talk about everything that went on in 1971. Hello, Chris. How you doing, Mike? There's a lot of Drek on the charts, or at least at the top of the charts this year. Honeycone want ads? Oh, uh, don't a... diss that record. I oh, really? Love that okay, record. good, good. I want to hear your response. But a couple of Osmond songs, one by Donnie, one by the Osmonds. Let's start there. Yeah, okay, fair enough. 
the important thing to know about 1971 vis-a-vis the Osmonds is that this was their year to have their Jackson 5 moment. Jackson 5 had broken in 1970 with four number one hits and just absolutely dominated the year and, you know, kind of redirected the way, you know, youth and teen idol music would would, uh, turn out in the 1970s. And basically the Osmonds uh, were the next act sort of anointed to, you know, fill that market. And if you think I'm being a little unfair to the Osmonds, just take one listen to their first number one hit in 1971, One Bad Apple. One bad apple don't spoil a whole bunch, girl. Oh, give it one more try before you give up on Man, everything about this record, from the arrangement down to the way Donnie sings, is all Jackson 5. Totally that Motown Corporation precision dance up-tempo kind of groove. <laughs> yeah, Detroit as routed through Utah. Tell me about Want Ads by The Honeycone. So I like Want Ads by The Honeycone, besides the fact that I just flat out like the record. Okay. I, I actually think it's an interesting record because it's almost like you can hear little strains of the beginnings of disco in this record. It, it, remember, we're talking about 1971, not 75, not 77, but it's it's a funk record. It's a soul record. It's got elements of 60s soul in it, but it's got some strings in it that recall a, a disco arrangement. The opening line is great. Wanted, young man, single and free. So I have a brand new pair of roller skates. James Taylor says you've got a friend. Was 71 his coming out party? Not entirely, but uh, it's definitely uh, his peak. Actually, if we're going to talk about James Taylor, we should talk about, you know, the summer of the singer-songwriter and really the summer of Carole King. Oh, yeah. Who... uh, wrote You've Got a Friend and first recorded it for her Tapestry album. But the hit version was by James Taylor, himself a singer-songwriter, yet this is his only number one hit, and it's a song written by his friend Carole King. Winter, spring, summer, or fall All you got to do is call And I'll be there Winter, spring, summer, or fall There's a Beatles connection to James Taylor, actually. James Taylor was one of the first artists signed to Apple Records in the late 1960s, discovered in part by Peter Asher, a friend of Paul McCartney's, and brought to the Apple label. He'd already recorded a couple of albums by 1971. But You've Got a Friend was uh, his biggest hit, and it went to number one almost immediately, just a couple of weeks later, after uh, Carole King scored her uh, big two-sided number one hit, It's Too Late and I Feel the Earth Move, both of which were songs uh, on the Tapestry album. Tapestry, of course, was the number one album of 1971. For about half a decade, Tapestry was the best-selling album of all time. Yeah. I feel the earth move under my feet. I feel the sky tumbling down. I feel my heart start to tremble whenever you're around. Oh, baby, when I see your face, mellow as the... Well, actually, let's keep it with female solo artists and talk about Janis Joplin, me, and Bobby McGee. 
Me and Bobby McGee is a posthumous number one single. It went to number one uh, just a few weeks after uh, Janice died at age 27. 27. Janice is member of that... Uh, Jimmy died at 27. Infamous 27 Club, yes. Jim, Her, Jim, Jim Morrison, Morrison, Kurt Cobain much later, Amy Winehouse... Janice had just died. She just recorded her debut solo album, Pearl. Me and Bobby McGee, famously written by Chris Christopherson, features that just immortal line, uh, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing, I mean nothing, honey, if it ain't free. Total classic. It is the second number one hit in Billboard history to uh, be a posthumous number one hit. The first being Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding, which went to number one after he died. It sort of served as a sad, uh, successful epitaph for uh, Janis Joplin's career. You know, there are some groups that you realize are great and have a lot of cred, but you don't realize how well they do on the chart. We keep talking about Sly and the Family Stone. He was really, they were really successful. They really were. Family Affair is this improbably wonderful record that is uncompromising in its sound. It's deep, it's funky, it's dark. From the lyric to the way it's, the fuzzy, funky way it's recorded. But uh, it was a, a three-week number one hit, a huge, huge hit. Mom the both of them you see it's in the blood both kids are good and bomb blood's thicker than the mud it's a family affair Three Dog Nights one of those bands they keep showing up at the top of the charts they're so much more successful chart wise than we remember them. I, not you but in general it's like oh yeah Three Dog Night you can name one or two of their songs they were billboard juggernauts they really were a billboard juggernaut and part of the reason why I think people kind of don't realize how big Three Dog Night were was that they had three main vocalists uh, in fact oh. Three Dog Night had uh, three number one hits uh, I believe they were in 1970 71 and I think the last one was around 73 and uh, each was sung by a different one of the three lead singers. Uh, the one we're talking about here, Joy to the World, is sung by uh, Chuck Negroni. Uh, he's the one who sings that gravelly Jeremiah was a bullfrog at the beginning of the song. Uh, and then the whole band chimes in. You're this unofficial tracker of uh, Bee Gees. You're a Bee Geesologist. So where were the Am Bee Gees? Yeah, you always know more about the Bee Gees than I think any man should know. Well, okay. Well, <laughs> that's probably because I grew up in Bensonhurst and I think fondly of the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. We'll get to that later. We did talk about the Bee Gees when we were doing our 1975 segment because they had a number one hit that year, which I should mention, Jive Talking, only because it's their first number one hit after this one in 1971, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart? Stop the rain from falling down. How can you stop 
the problem for the Bee Gees is that after they recorded How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, they kind of went into the chart doldrums for about three or four years. They couldn't get a hit for, for quite some time. And they went through a period where the label just wanted them to keep doing these kinds of slow, lugubrious ballads. Uh, so it was both a huge record for them and uh, a, a bit of a career killer for them, at least for four or five years. That's what makes their disco comeback in the second half of the 70s so interesting and so improbable, because in the first half of the 70s, they have this one number one hit, and then they fall off the face of the earth. I can still feel the breeze That rustles through the trees And misty memories of days gone by If we could thematically tie some or all of these songs together, is there anything they have in common or that they have in common with what's going on in America? 1971 is... I would say the year that arguably the 70s became the 70s. It's when the 70s start to take shape. You've got singer-songwriters in 1971. Uh, you've got what I would call proto-disco in 1971. You've got funk. You've got uh, teen idols. And then you've got a couple of solo Beatles. Uh, by the way, Mike, can I ask you a trivia question? Yes, let's do it. All four solo Beatles had number one hits in yeah. the five years after the group broke up. Who had the first solo number one hit? Let's see. Ringo. With Sneak and Sally through the alley. No, Ringo with, I don't know. Let's, it, well, the, George Harrison charted in 71. Uh, did John Lennon with Nobody Told Me There'd Be Days Like These? I don't know. Who was it? It, it was, in fact, George Harrison uh, yeah. with the first number one song of 1971. It's actually a song that went to number one at the end of 1970, My Sweet Lord, My Sweet Isn't Lord. It a Pity? He had the first number one uh, single of any of the solo Beatles, which uh, was sweet justice for a guy who complained that they never let him have enough records on the Beatles albums. I really want to see you. Thank you, Chris Malamphy, who is, as you know, the author of Why Is This Song Number One, that column on Slate, and he plays the, hey, let's talk about the number one singles for a year game here on The Gist. Thanks, Chris. You got it, Mike. Today's 40-somethings are charting their own courses, sometimes by choice, but many times out of necessity, like caring for aging parents or starting new careers midlife, juggling today's financial realities with planning for retirement, and much more. Prudential's 4040 Vision brings these challenges and others into sharper focus through real-life interviews and commentary from 40-somethings, plus a compelling four-part podcast on first-time parenthood in your 40s with radio and television personality Faith Saley. Be sure to experience it all at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. And now the spiel, first impressions. It is an Antan twig, our word for a three-week period where all family business is settled. The Antan twig, of course, culminates with our announcing of the Lopstar. For the first time ever, a physical Lopstar exists. We have a Lopstar. 
we will put the lobster's name on this lobster. So I guess we have a lobster, and once we put the star on it, then it becomes a lobster. Anyway, it will all be documented. It will all be kept under seal in the gist offices. Go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash slategist. So I've locked in my Bernie Sanders. I'm really bad at impressions. I don't really try them. I try them a little in my personal life. I know my loved ones will indulge me. I also take the the mask on the stick method and I put that in front of my face. So if I'm doing a Marv Albert, I'll be wearing the Marv Albert mask and it'll really sell it when I say, yes, I'm the foul. I mean, it doesn't sound that good in real life. So that's one of my three impressions, my Marv Albert. Maybe I got a couple more. I got a, uh, a Henry Rush. He was the character from that Ted Knight played on Too Close for Comfort. You ready for that one? Got to move away from the microphone. Here's my, here's my Mr. Rush from Too Close for Comfort. Monroe! It's not that good, but if you remember Mr. Rush, he, he did two things. He illustrated Cosmic Cow, and he yelled at Jim J. Bullock. So what I usually do is I try to just maybe get the cadence. Like, I can't do an Obama, but... I know he has this cadence, and sometimes if I quote him, I'm not trying to even sell it. Like, oh, this is really Obama. It's just somewhat evocative. And that's why the Republicans in Congress, dad jeans, executive order. I mean, does that, that's not really even Obama-ish. But you know, you know that I'm trying. Well, anyway, I've got one like that. And what I like to do is just get on one phrase. So in this race, I've got my, uh, I've got my Donald Trump. Oh. But, of course, there's not enough context there. I have to remind you that's how he described Jeb Bush and Jeb Bush's energy. Oh. And I also have, oh, yeah, I have one more. This is a very niche impression. This is Ariana Huffington. I got two words that she says. You ready? Judy Miller. That's it. That's my Ariana Huffington. Well, now I got a new one. I got a new one for the presidential campaign. It fits in well with how I normally talk or at least how I know people talk. You ready? millionaires and billionaires. That's it. It's Bernie Sanders. Let's hear the real Bernie Sanders. By giving tax breaks to millionaires and billionaires. 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 That's it. The as, it goes as, not as. I don't want to growl the as. That, that, that's the auto body shop guy. Millionaires. But Bernie's more like millionaires and billionaires. He's having fun. All right. I I also do have a killer Jim Gilmore, but the former Virginia governor just not polling in the top tier. All right. That was a humble brag because it was a brag, but my talents are clearly humble. And here now is a humble shame. A few weeks ago, I was talking about having survived the government shutdown, and I dismissed it as a couple days without access to Yellowstone National Park. Not much worse. And then Heather Kovich wrote in. She says, she quoted me when I said, the anarchy of 2013 when blood was traded as currency and Yellowstone Park was closed for about two weeks. Heather writes, for some reason, people always talk about the national parks when they talk about a government shutdown. I'm a family physician at a federal hospital on the Navajo Reservation. The government has a treaty obligation to provide health care for Native Americans on reservations, an obligation which gets overlooked during a government shutdown. She goes on to explain that most of the employees are essential, but that doesn't mean terrible things doesn't happen, like the pharmacy budget is affected. And one of her patients, a grandmother with severe rheumatoid arthritis, had to miss several doses of medication. The shutdown literally caused pain and suffering for this frail woman. Heather Kovic goes on to say that in 2013, her nurse sold her cattle to tide her family through the period of delayed pay. 
And Kovic says, I can't confirm it, but I wouldn't be surprised if some folks really did sell their blood or at least their plasma for currency during the last shutdown. I appreciate that letter. I was glib. I don't know if I shouldn't have been. Glib is my brand, but it's always good to know the real costs of some of the things I make fun of. Now, another letter from a poetess. I know we're not supposed to gender names. I'm your server. I'm an actor. But I kind of like poetess. Catherine Maris is such a poetess. And she informs me that her poem, The H-Man, was inspired by a gisty and sporty read, The Way I Talk. This was published in the New Statesman. She's a real poetess. Here, I'll read it. I'll read it in my voice. This is a poem based on my voice. His superpower was being the subject of ever-taller tales about his prowess at hurling, a sport with prehistoric Gaelic origins, where players use hurleys, sticks, on a sleotar, ball, aiming it over the crossbar of the goalpost for one point or under the crossbar of the goalpost into the net for three. Considered to be the fastest player ever in a sport known to be the world's fastest field sport, the H-man once broke the nose of an opponent with his force plus velocity, though some say he broke his ribs or legs. He did not go professional because there is no professional hurling, but he did become a poet because that position does exist. Ooh, that was the H-man, and I thank poetess Catherine Maris. She is not the Lopstar, however. Let me remind you of the last Lopstar, our Lopstar Emeritus, who will also be memorialized and documented. That will be documented on our Facebook page. It was Philosopop, that's his Twitter handle, who informed me that here in Brazil, so he's speaking Portuguese, Peru's a country, and the word for turkey, and Peru is also the word for penis. When I asked him, what do you call a turkey penis? He said, if it's a Peruvian turkey penis, you could say, um Peru, de Peru, du Peru. All right, remember that, because I say it a lot. And you ask me, and now you know. Our lobster of this Antan Twig, Simmer Milwaukee. This is my first lobster that is going to a company and not a person. But Simmer Milwaukee got in touch with me when I was talking about my ill treatment at the hands of Starbucks, who would not refund me a biscuit, even though I clearly paid for two wraps and a biscuit. And though some people said I was being difficult, I assure you I was being kind. I said I have no receipt, but I swear to God, this isn't my game to come in and ask for this biscuit. Simmer Milwaukee tweeted, this is why we tell our staff to just freaking make people happy. It's not hard and it pays for itself many times over. Karma, man. You want to see how it pays for itself? It pays for itself in the form of a lobster. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi's choice to eat freshly killed birds that she finds on the street is criticized as disgusting by humans, but not going far enough by dogs. So she must be eating something right. Executive producer Andy Bowers, his belief that our planet was founded by a dictator named Xenu 75 million years ago is criticized as blasphemous by Christians. But his contention that today humans are no longer affected by the spirits of these aliens, that's decried as inaccurate by Scientologists. So he must be doing something theologically right. The gist, seen as insufficiently obnoxious by members of the mixed martial art team Extreme Brain Force, but seen as too obnoxious by a group of hospice nurses who get together every Thursday to do warm yoga. So we must be doing something right. Um Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thanks for listening.
let me ask you the other half of the trivia question. Who was the last solo Beatle to have a number one hit? All right, so we know Paul did it with Linda McCartney and Wings. So let me try to think. When, what was what was Ringo's number one song? Uh, Ringo actually had two number one songs. Uh-huh. They were both around 73, 74. Uh, one was Photograph, and the other one is a cover of uh, You're 16. Photograph. Yep, that That's one. That's a nice song. Yep. That's a nice song to sing around in a pub. So I guess, did John chart after him? Did yes, John that's wait? right. Th- th- this, is one of my f- this is one of my favorite trivia bits, that John oh, Lennon interesting. was the last of the solo Beatles to have a number one hit. He didn't go to number one in America until late 1974 with Whatever Gets You Through the Night, the song that uh, he was helped on by uh, Elton John. Both Instant Karma in 1970 and Imagine in 1971 peaked at number three. Imagine so, didn't go to number one. Imagine, Imagine did that. not go to number one and neither did Instant Karma. So uh, even though John was the first of the four Beatles to release a solo single, he released Give Peace a Chance back in 1969 while the group was still together, John was the last to score a number one hit. So it's kind of a topsy-turvy world where George Harrison gets the first number one hit and Ringo gets one before John Lennon. What was the last? Who was the last Beatle to have a number one hit? You were absolutely correct. The last Beatle to have any number one hit at all was uh, George Harrison in 1988 with Got My Mind Set On You. Which is funny because Paul's been churning out songs, just not maybe great songs. Arguably not. not big not. hits. Although yes. Paul did have a big hit this year with Kanye West and uh, Rihanna. So, you know, <laughs> Paul uh, Paul's keeping it active. 